helpful. Uh, one of the things that when you preach on Sundays is prep every week. And so even though I'm here, uh, a gift has been given to me. My friend Tiffany uh, is going to speak today. It allows me this last week to commit to my family and not be thinking constantly about Sunday's sermon. And so I'm thankful that I get to just be here and learn. Tiffany uh, has a long resume. I was looking through it as she sent it to me. Uh, she uh, was in the U.S. Army. Uh, she has done some different chaplain work. Um, she currently is working on her doctorate in spiritual formation. Uh, she served as family pastor and children's ministry. She's working now as an evangelist. She leads a family uh, trip to Colorado. And so if you're interested in that, uh, she does that. Her family does that. She's with her husband and son. They're all authors. Um, and so just a great family. And I'm appreciative of Tiffany being here. And so if you would, would you welcome Tiffany today? Good morning. Have you ever been to the desert? Yeah? It's a different experience, isn't it? <laughs> I grew up where there's a lot of water and a lot of trees and, and it's lush and, you know, that's the environment I'm drawn to. Uh, but sometimes, you know, you find yourself in different situations, uh, like the desert where it's dry and there's not much water. And as far as you can see, you, you see no people or water, you know? <laughs> Um, many years ago, my, my family and I, we're outdoorsy people. We like to be outdoors, and we're always looking for some new adventure, some new fun thing to do. So we had this crazy idea many years ago to take a group of teenagers on a camping, hiking trip to Utah. And we found ourselves in the middle of the desert. We did. Uh, we spent a whole week, though, of climbing and exploring and riding dirt bikes over slick rock. It's insane. It's an insane environment. And it was a lot of fun. But the most memorable part of it was this one time where we packed everything we had on our back and we headed into the desert. We were out in the Needles area. Absolutely beautiful. As far as you could see, just these rock formations coming up out of the ground. So it's a unique beauty. But we were very well aware that we were in the desert. The ground was hard, it was dry. The sun was beating down. It was hot. We're carrying everything on our backs. Um, you know, the teenagers are like, are we there yet? Are we there yet? Yeah. Uh, so we finally get to this place where we found a little stream. And we're like, oh, this sounds like a good place to stop. So we stopped for the night. Very hard to set up a tent when the ground is rock. You know, but we managed to do it. We had to filter our own water. It just took a lot of extra work to do everything. And then when that sun tucked down behind that jagged rock, all of a sudden it got cold. And I'm, I'm talking cold, like praying all night, dear God, just help me survive this night. It's so cold. Uh, so that, that's our little desert experience. And I have to say, uh, many years later, we never have camped in the desert since. <laughs> like, that was enough. We've done it. We're good now. We don't have to do it again. Uh, but every time... I think about, uh, if I'm reading a story in the Bible, and they're talking about the desert, I go back to my little short two-day desert experience in Utah, and how hard that was. And as you read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's a lot of stories about people living in the desert. Mm -hmm. Like, all throughout the Bible, there's desert experiences. 
uh, sometimes by choice, sometimes not. Uh, it's very interesting. So to think that, that God's people during the Bible are living in the desert, I automatically think, oh, wow, that must have been a really hard life. That must have been hard. They had to find water. They had to survive. And so today's lesson, we're going to take a look into the book of Exodus at the very beginning, Exodus 1. And we find God's people, these are after the days of Joseph, living in the desert. And Exodus 1-7 says, But the Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Here, we see a small nation, not only living in the desert, but thriving and growing in number. So the family system was very important there, and it was important for them to have large families, so it was, the numbers, was, that was a very important thing. But they also had been given this promise from Abraham that his, his family would multiply. So they were right on track. They were doing what they were supposed to be doing. And that's where we come into the book of Exodus. God's people living in the desert, growing and thriving. Well, they were a small nation, and they were surrounded by several other nations trying to survive as well. So there were constant threats all around them, but the biggest one was Egypt. Egypt wasn't that far away. Egypt was right there. They were the big superpower, and they were on the river, so they had it all. They were booming. They were thriving. They were growing, and as a superpower of their day, they were really concerned with maintaining their power. So they took note of this small little peculiar nation that was growing and thriving. And the Pharaoh became worried that maybe they had too much power. Not that they could take on Egypt, but it says in uh, verses 9 and 10, Look, the Israelite people are more numerous and more powerful than we. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, or they will increase. And in the event of war, join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So they were afraid that another enemy would come by and, and this small group of people would join with them and fight against them. Well, what did they do? They decided to overtake them. That's how they decided to eliminate that threat, is they came in, they, they took them over, and they basically made the whole nation slaves. So just like that, you have this nation that was thriving, and now they've lost their freedoms, and they were harsh taskmasters. As you read through the book of Exodus, it's just they, there were harsh conditions, they were put to hard labor, Forget what they did before. They were put to hard labor because Egypt was growing and thriving and they needed someone to build their buildings and take care of all the work that needed to be done. And that's what they imposed upon this nation. They lost their freedom just like that. Now, many of them were probably thinking, what just happened? What did we do? And now what do we do? And how can we get out of this situation? Because... They were so big and so strong that how do you get out of this situation? So they were shocked. They were adapting to their new reality. So what was once hard, living and thriving in the desert, now all of a sudden was extremely hard because they had no freedom. They had no choice. 
and for 430 years, they were slaves for Egypt. 430. That's several generations. Several generations that were born, lived, and died in that situation. That's a long time. That is a very long time. And the Pharaoh of the day, because obviously this is not the same Pharaoh, uh, the Pharaoh of the day took notice that the people that were supposed to just be servants were growing stronger because they did. They continued to grow in number and be strong and thrive even though they were in this horrible situation. And so the Pharaoh got really concerned. So he called the midwives and he called them over and he said, here's what I want you to do. When a, when a baby boy is born, don't let him live. Well, they didn't listen to him. They didn't. And he said, why aren't, why aren't you doing what I asked you to do? And they said, oh, these women are strong. They have their babies. We're not there, so we can't do anything about it. So instead, Pharaoh said, well, I'll take care of this. He made a commandment that all the newborn male babies were not to live. I mean, how devastating. Already you don't have your freedom. Already you've spent generations in this situation, and now they're taking your sons. So... Um, rough, rough life. How in the world did they stay together? How did they stay strong? How did they keep going day after day, so much so that even though they're enslaved, they were a threat? It is this situation that Moses is born. This is the scenario. This is what's going on. And all of a sudden, a baby boy is born, that according to Pharaoh was not supposed to live, and it's baby Moses. His mom hid him away as long as she could. She made a basket. She hid him in the, the reeds along the water's edge to try to protect him and save his life. And one day, Pharaoh's daughter found the baby. And she decided, I think I'll keep it, because I guess she could, and she did. So Moses, you have, growing up, in the, the palace of the Pharaoh, even though he was born Hebrew. So Moses is this, this unique character. I mean, there aren't any other accounts of other babies being saved from this tragedy and being raised in the Pharaoh's household, basically. This is the only one we know of when we read through Scripture. So we have Moses, and he's, he's torn between these two worlds. He knew where he came from. He knows where he lives. He can see what's happening, and, and there's just inner turmoil that goes on within Moses. So much so, when he was older, he was a young man, he went out and he saw one of the guards beating one of the slaves, and he got so angry that he beat the guard up and killed him. And then he knew at that moment, he really knew who he was because he realized he couldn't get away with that. Even though he had been raised in the palace, he knew he could not get away with that. So he ran. He ran for his life. And he escaped. He got out. Not long after that, the scriptures read verses, uh, chapters 3 and 4, is he is married. He's a father. He's living in a different land, it's still the desert, living in a different land, 
And he, you know, it seems as though, hey, he got a fresh start. This is all good. But he still knew who he was, and God wasn't done with him yet. He wasn't. So in Exodus 3, 7 and 8, we, we find Moses, he's out tending the flock. I imagine that was pretty hard, you know, having to find water and food, not only for yourself, but for all the animals as well. So he's out doing his job. He's tending the flock, and he sees a bush that's on fire. So, of course, that's going to pique his curiosity. There probably aren't that many bushes that could be on fire. But, so he goes over, and he, and he looks at the bush, and he quickly realizes that God is speaking to him the voice of God, and he becomes very reverent, very reverent of the fact that God, the creator, is speaking to him, and so God has a message for him, and this is what he says in verses 7 and 8, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them out of that land and into a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. Well, Moses is standing there like he's probably thinking, good, it's been a long time. And then God informs him that he's going to use him to make this happen. Now, you realize, Moses, he got out. And he's also wanted for murder. So he's not wanting to go back to Egypt. He's not wanting to obey at this point. And he starts to reasoning with God, like, yeah, really, isn't there somebody else that can do this? Um, but anyway, at the end of the day, this is Moses' moment of truth, this defining moment in his life. And he decides to say, yes, Lord. So he goes back to Egypt. Goes back to Egypt. Now, this is a unique situation. Because how many slave-born, wanted-for-murder runaways can come back and get one-on-one -on -one FaceTime with the Pharaoh? Well, to our knowledge, only Moses. And so he goes in, and he meets with the Pharaoh, and the story just, begins, just keeps getting larger and larger at this point. Because he says the famous words, let my people go. Pharaoh says no. And then the plagues start coming. A total of ten plagues bringing destruction and harm and pain and discomfort to the people of Egypt. And he kept saying, let my people go. And Pharaoh kept saying no. And then the plagues kept coming. And they kept coming. And still, they were dug in. They were not going to let the slaves go. Until finally that tenth plague came. And on that night, all the firstborn males of Egypt did not make it through the night. They perished. Devastating, devastating event. And so in the devastation, in the grief, they're like, go, just get out, go. So all of a sudden, you had thousands of slaves and their families and their animals and any belongings they could have, and they picked up and took off. Must have been a scene. Must have been quite a scene as they were escaping. They didn't know how they were going to escape. There was a big river there. They get to the river. The waters part. They cross through. All of a sudden, they're standing on the other side. They are technically free. They have escaped. God has delivered them. 
and they stand on the edge of their journey into this promised land of milk and honey that God had promised them. Well, they got worried all of a sudden, "Uh uh-oh, we just let all our slaves go. We can't do that. So they sent the army to go get them. The army gets there, the waters were released, and all of a sudden the army's washed away. Another devastating loss of life. Big, epic story. A lot of major things happening. A lot of beginnings of things that that played out through the rest of history happened during this story. I just kind of skimmed over it really fast, gave you the highlights. But this was very significant time in history for God's people. The escape from Egypt. And we look at Moses and we think, wow, what would I do in that situation? And it's pretty inspiring that even though he was in that situation, he still said, yes, Lord, I'll go. It's inspiring. It's significant. But at the same time, that's just about the only way I can relate with Moses. (laughs) I don't really relate with him in too many other ways. Um, He was obedient, and that is inspiring. But there's something else that we, we, when we read through this story and we think about all the epic events, we kind of miss a very important element, and that is the people. We often don't stop and think about the people that endured for almost 500 years. It says 430. People are key. They're significant. The way they stayed together, the way they survived, the way they, they moved forward in this situation, those are the normal, everyday people. Those are the ones that kept it together. And those are also the ones that I think I can relate to a little bit more. It's just the normal, everyday, how do we do this? How, how do we function as God's people in any situation? Well, there are three things, three characteristics, three things about the people of God in this story that are very significant that I'd like to highlight this morning. First of all, they never lost their identity. They never gave up on the idea that they were God's people. Now, I'm sure some of them did. Can't speak for all of them. But the majority kept their identity as we are God's people. A lot of times, when smaller groups are taken into captivity, they lose their identity. This has happened throughout history all different types of people, um, when when they're taken and they're stripped from their freedom and they lose their identity of who they are and where they're from. Sometimes they bleed into the new culture, they assimilate. Other times they're simply just worked to death and then they cease to exist. But not the Israelites. They continued. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that they kept their identity. See, their situation changed. It drastically changed from surviving and thriving in the desert to all of a sudden being enslaved. Their situation drastically changed. They were persecuted. They were beat down. But they held on to who they were because their situation did not determine their identity. They held tight as the people of God. Another thing is, they continued to pray. 
They were praying people. And we see this in Exodus 3 because God said, I have heard their cries. Now he heard their cries because they were crying out to him. They continued to communicate. They continued to open themselves up to God through prayer. Throughout all those generations, they continued to cry out. Never underestimate the power of prayer. We misunderstand it a lot. We get confused by it a lot. We get frustrated sometimes when it doesn't work the way we want it to work. But never underestimate the power of a praying people. Because you have this amazing connection with your creator. You as a person can talk to the creator. We as a people can come together collectively speak with our creator. It's an amazing gift we have. And I'm sure they had their doubts. I'm sure they had their frustrations. I'm sure they were tired. I'm sure they had a lot of questions as to why are we in this situation and why are we having to go through this? Because those are normal questions that at some point in life we all ask. They just had a continual, ongoing, many, many hundred years of asking these questions. But they maintained their identity and they kept praying. Another thing is, they told their story. They kept telling their story. You see, they knew their history. They, they knew about their creator. They knew about Adam and Eve. They knew about Noah. They knew about Abraham. They knew about Joseph. They, they knew their history. And the way they did this was through the spoken word. There wasn't a lot of written word back then. It was kind of new on the scene. It was a new thing. Uh, matter of fact, in those days, in order to write something, you had to take the, uh, the reeds from the water and mash them together and dry it and then find something from the earth to write with. And, and then if it got wet, it would all wash away. So it, it wasn't a common thing to have the written word in these days. It was the spoken word was the way that things were passed along, the way things were taught, the way things were uh, preserved such as your identity. So through, the, through their years, they had come up with many practices or even rituals to where they would retell their story over and over again. And some of these were daily, and some of these were annual, and their story was very important because they needed to remind themselves of who they were. They needed to continue to grow as to what that meant. And they needed to pass that on to the next generation. So telling their story was a very vital part of this community. They kept living out their faith in this way. We, we have our own practices today. We're doing one right now. Church, we're telling the story. Yeah, you meet together sometimes with Bible study or, or conversation over coffee or some chat you may have in the car driving down the road. But how we live our lives, we're telling our story over and over again. Whatever your story is, and we all have one. We all have a story. So they maintained their identity, they kept praying, and they kept sharing their story. These are very important elements that got this group of people through 430 years of slavery to where 
They're standing on the edge of the shore waiting for this promised land now. They had no idea the journey they were going to have to take to get there, but they were ready for it. Um, you know, we don't live in a desert, and we don't live thousands of years ago. Um, we, are, we have freedoms here, but we still have a lot in common with, with these folks. A lot of things that I can just imagine I would think if I was in that situation. A lot of things that, that are the same throughout time, no matter where you live or, or what you do. Um, we constantly find ourselves in the midst of cultural change as well. It's, it never ends. It's always changing. That's just how the world works. So we find ourselves in the midst of change, and sometimes we think, well, what are we supposed to do with this, or where do we go with that? I don't know what to think. And, and it, gets, it can get a little overwhelming, and sometimes we can get caught up in things, and we can get distracted, and we can forget our own identity. Our cultural changes do not define our identity. They just give us the situation in which to live it out. There are people all around the world today worshiping in private, in secret. They're scared for their lives. They're scared of being persecuted. The early church was persecuted. But we will continue to be God's people. If that's who we choose to be, if you sign up for it and say, I want to follow Christ, then it doesn't matter where we live or when we live or what situation we're in, our identity is not shaped by our situation. Well, it's not defined. It is shaped because it shapes how we live our life and how we live that out every day. But God's faithfulness never ends. It may not make sense to us. We may not see it. It may not be in the time we want. I'm sure those folks in Egypt were thinking, isn't it about time our prayers got answered? So sometimes it doesn't happen how we think it's supposed to happen. But God is faithful, and he continues to be faithful. Just like the Israelites were the children of God, if we so choose to be, we are too. Keep praying. Keep praying. It's an intentional act, prayer is, of coming into the presence of God. We choose to be an active participant in this activity and in this relationship. So open yourself up to God. Willingly do things that will put you in the middle of the work that God is already doing, and God is on the move. God is at work. Join in. That's what we're called to do. We're we are asked to join in what's already happening. And it's been happening since the beginning of time. I mean, there are other spiritual practices you can do, too. Um, there's reading your Bible. It's important to know. It's uh, prayer, like we discussed. It's times of silence, times of solitude. Acts of service getting into the community and loving others and sharing God's love. These are all ways that we intentionally align ourselves with the work that God is already doing. Be an active participant. 
The Israelites continued to worship God, even through generations of slavery. We have the same charge. We have the same mission. It's to continue to pursue God, even in the midst of change. Sometimes it's welcome change. Sometimes it's unwelcome change in our lives. But the mission stays the same. The call stays the same. And tell your story. And you can do that just by living it out. You can tell your story in a variety of ways. We have more than just the spoken word now. I love videos, you know, videos, photography, worship songs. Uh, we have books, we have fiction, we have nonfiction. There's so many ways to express what God is doing, what we're experiencing, incorporating the history of how God has been faithful throughout the generations and how we live that out. There are opportunities every day all around us to tell our story. So tell it to the kids. Tell it to other people's kids. Tell it to adults and tell it to yourself because we constantly should be searching for more. Not just to know more, not just to be smarter or to have knowledge. It's so we can incorporate it into our lives, so we can open ourselves up to the work of the Spirit you get those tugs in your heart. You should go talk to this person, or you should give something over here, or you should go serve over there. Or sometimes the tug in your heart is just be quiet. You never know what the Spirit's going to ask you to do. But that's the life. When you intentionally step into God's work. The Israelites had certain practices as they told their story. They knew their history. And, you know, we have our own. Like I mentioned, we're doing one right now. So find those ways. Find those ways that are already happening and jump in. If God gives you a new idea, run with the new idea. But be inspired. Be creative. Tap into God's presence that's ever searching after you, that's ever pursuing you, that's always open to anyone. doesn't matter who you are. And these three things of knowing identity and praying and telling the story, they all fit together. They're not just these single acts because one's going to affect the other and it's going to affect the other and it's going to come back around and affect the other. And They all fit together. And that's just the life of pursuing Christ. So just remember that God is always pursuing you, always loving you, always wanting you, and is forever reaching out. Just like the people of Israel. He didn't leave them, but they did have to obey. Just like Moses. They obeyed. They waited. And then these miraculous things happened. <laughs> Epic things. But if the people had not come together, if they had not supported one another, if they had not continually put themselves in that place of praying out to God, then it would have been a very different story. So yes, Moses was important. Yes, his faithfulness was important. But the people, the people, normal everyday people, 
played a vital role in this part of history. Just like today, we play a vital role in this part of history. We don't have the advantage of having hindsight, of looking back and thinking, well, I'm really glad we did that then. I'm glad we stayed together. I'm glad we kept pursuing God, or opening up to God pursuing us. But we can learn from the past. We can learn from those who went before us of how important it is to open yourselves up to the work of God and joining the presence and the movement that's already happening. Because we're the people. We're it for today. So be encouraged. Be encouraged. Embrace your identity. Keep praying. And join with God as he continues to show the love for people everywhere, no matter what the situation. Be encouraged, because we are God's people. Thank you.